Policing is a major topic of conversation in American society today. Use of force, racial profiling, and institutional racism, and the need to build trust and strengthen the relationship between law enforcement and the community are top-of-mind topics in the ongoing social justice movement. Savannah Police Chief Roy Minter is committed to keeping SPD, quote, ahead of the curve, unquote, when it comes to police reform. Chief Minter is our guest on the May 27, 2021 edition of Difference Makers, presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. From the digital team at savannahnow.com, this is Difference Makers, a podcast featuring interviews with Savannah's community leaders about what they do, how they do it, and why. I'm Adam Van Bremer, and joining me for this episode is Savannah Police Chief Roy Minter, who is now in his third year leading SPD. Minter shares insights on what sparked his interest in law enforcement, what he calls relationship-based policing, and the social justice movement in today's Difference Makers interview. Just as an FYI, you won't hear the chief discuss the in-custody death of William Zachary Harvey or an incident involving SPD officers and a text message meme that referenced lynching in today's episode. Both of those matters were still being investigated at the time of this interview. Here's Difference Maker Roy Minter. Joined on this episode of Difference Makers by Chief Roy Minter. Very overdue uh, get-together to to familiarize ourselves with with Chief Minter, who's been here three years now, but it's gone, been a very eventful three years and gone by very, very fast. And I appreciate him, his willingness to come in and spend some time with us today and and share a little bit about him. And uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about what most people expect we're going to talk about. And that's what's going on in the world today in terms of police reform and race and policing and all of that really impactful stuff that we're dealing with as a society right now. But before we get to that, we usually start with some biographical information. And uh, most people, I think if they see you on the street now, they recognize you. You've been here around here long enough now for that to happen. But mm-hmm. how much do they know about you before you got here? And we were talking before I hit the record button, and I learned in two minutes a lot of information I didn't know beforehand. So take us back. You grew up in Detroit, right? I did. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to join you today. It's truly an honor. Uh, But yeah, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan. Um, Grew up there. uh, Spent my childhood there. um, Spent some of my adult life there. It's still home for me. I still have family back there in Detroit. Still go back and visit. And yes, I am still a Detroit Tigers fan and Detroit Red Wings fan. (laughs) Hopefully not a Michigan Wolverine fan. Oh, absolutely. Go Blue. I'm an Ohio State guy, so we'll just uh, we'll agree to disagree on that one. Well, I won't use profanity over the <laughs> air. So, <laughs> so the heart of Detroit. What, what kind of what kind of neighborhood? Your parents, uh, blue collar, white collar. What? Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Parents, for the most part, blue collar. I mean, uh, my mom worked in a supermarket uh, as cashier for for the majority of her life, and my father was a truck driver. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And the neighborhood was was pretty close knit. Pretty close knit neighborhood. Um, lived on both sides. Um, Grew up mostly on the east side of Detroit and then moved to the west side of Detroit. So, you know, ex- experienced both sides of the city. Mm-hmm. What did the kids do there? A lot of a lot of basketball, baseball, snowball fights in the wintertime? What, uh... Well, I mean, you hit it. All of the above. I mean, basketball, baseball, sometimes basketball in, in the alley, uh, baseball in the parks, um, tag, um, 
flag football, tackle football in the parks. It, it was a great time. I wouldn't trade my, my childhood for anything in the world. Right, right. What was your what was your uh, forte? What were you best at? I, you know, I really like, I wouldn't say best at, right. but, but what did I spend majority of my time doing? I would say probably playing basketball uh-huh. um, and a little bit of football. Right. Yeah, probably like me, you were average, pretty average at pretty much everything. And that's a, that's a good way to be when you're a kid, right? Well, a, a, exactly. Uh, but it depends on your definition of average. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't mean to talk you down. I hope, hope I'm not underestimating your, your uh, skills there. But uh, what, about as a, what about as a student of the school? Yeah, um, you know, of course, went to elementary school, middle school, high school mm-hmm. there in Detroit. Uh, completed a couple of years of college there in the Detroit area. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I got um, a lot of my education there in the inner city of Detroit. Right. So you mentioned uh, your mother was a cashier in a supermarket. Your father was a truck driver. Well, those are your two biggest influences. And who else might have been a big influence on you? Well, life? absolutely. You know, my, my parents, of course, were my two biggest influences. Um, you know, having both my parents there um, to lead and guide me. And to make sure I stayed on the straight path. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I absolutely knew what I could and could not do. Um, my father's famous line was, son, if you ever get arrested, remember, you only get one phone call. Uh, don't waste it on me. You might want to <laughs> use it for somebody who's actually going to come down there and get you. Because if I didn't take you down there, I'm not coming to get you. Um, and that always stuck with me because right. my father always stressed to me, there is no reason in the world for you to ever have to go to jail. Mm-hmm. So you should never have to end up in jail. So I'd say my parents were a big influence on me. Um, of course, my grandmother, you know, assisted with raising me with both of my parents, you know, working. So she was she was a huge influence. But, you know, I was raised and I tell people all this all the time. I was raised in what I believe is, is the actual village. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was not just my mom and my dad, but it was the next door neighbor. It was the people down the next block. And, and, and if I got in trouble, if I did something wrong, you know, I got whacked and I got talked to all the way down the block. Right. So by the time I got home, you know, it was the grand finale. Right. <laughs> Isn't that funny how the, you know, in neighborhoods when everybody's looking out for everybody else. Absolutely. You hear, you hear a lot of that. You Absolutely. That. Did you have a tendency to find trouble or not so much? You know, I, you know, I didn't. I didn't. Um, you know, and I believe if both my parents were alive, they would, they would tell you that, you know, I was a easy child to raise um my sister and i tell her this all the time was probably the more difficult child mm-hmm. uh, but you know i i wasn't the type who got in trouble i wasn't the type that caused my parents any problems um you know and and, and i'm proud of you know the leeway they gave me uh, because they weren't strict 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 mm-hmm. i mean they gave me the latitude to grow up and to go out and have fun and trusted me uh knowing that i would do the right thing but also knowing that I was fully aware of the consequences if I didn't do the right thing. Right. Academically, what were you what were you interested in as a kid? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? You know, two things. Um, I really admired uh, one of my elementary school teachers. And I had said, you know, at some point, you know, I, I wanted to be just like him. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and then the other thing I thought about was I said, you know, someday I'd like to be a business owner. I'd like to own my own business. I'd like to be the person there at the top calling the shots and making the major decisions in, mm-hmm. in the business. So those were the two things I really focused on growing up. Where does policing enter the picture? Well, you know, that's interesting because, you know, I tell people, especially when I talk to young people who some of them are not very receptive to the police or receptive to law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And I can really connect with them because I tell them 
that's where I was. I was you. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood where we didn't necessarily have officer friendly. We didn't have community policing back then. We didn't have officers riding around and stopping and playing basketball with us or checking on us to see how we were doing. Uh, Usually the only time I saw the police in my community was when they were either doing one or two things, either writing someone a ticket or taking somebody to jail. So my view was the only thing the police does um, is write somebody a ticket or take somebody to jail. And it wasn't really until I got to high school, my junior year of high school, I went in to register for my classes. And after I registered for my classes, I went and turned in my registration form to my guidance counselor. And my guidance counselor looked at it and he said, "Um, young man, you're one class short of what you need for this semester. You need to get back there because we had to, you know, pick our classes in the lunchroom. He said, you need to get back to the lunchroom and pick up another class. Well, when I got back there, there were only two choices left, biology and criminal justice. Well, mama didn't raise no fool. (laughs) So I figured this criminal justice thing would be an easy A. So I said, I'll take this criminal justice thing. And of course, I didn't look at the course curriculum, the outline. I knew nothing about it. All I thought was criminal justice can't be that hard. I should be able to get at least a C in this. And the first day of class, when I showed up, the instructor started passing around a sign-up list. And I'm going, what are we signing up for? And he said, well, didn't you read the curriculum? The class requires you to spend a minimum of 10 hours per week working at one of the local police stations. Oh, wow. And I went, well, wait a minute now. I said, I don't want to work at a police station. I said, as a matter of fact, I don't like the police. Mm -hmm. And the teacher politely informed me that if you don't complete the co-op part of the class, you will not complete the class. Mm -hmm. And you will not get credit for the class. So I reluctantly... Um, took myself to the local police station and handed the form in and began doing my 10 hours a week working at one of the local police stations there in the city of Detroit. And that was really the turning point for me because I got to spend time around police officers and I got to see them in a different light and I got to communicate with them differently. And I realized that there was a total different side of policing and police officers than I'd ever seen in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And the next year, my senior year, I voluntarily took the second half of the criminal justice class. And then when I graduated from high school, guess what I wanted to be? Right. What did you do in those 10 hours? Um, You would do filing, you do paperwork, um, you would answer the phone, uh, you would kind of be the receptionist for people coming in. But the majority of what you would do as part of the class is you would have the opportunity to interview police officers and then kind of write you know, some notes, do some presentations about what the police officers did. Um, and then you'd also have the opportunity to spend time with them kind of showing you what the day in the life of a police officer looks like. Mm-hmm. You said you saw them in a different light. Is there any a couple of things that really surprised you? I wouldn't say surprised me. You know, I think one of the big turning points for me was I worked out of what they called a mini station, which was kind of a a storefront mini police station in the neighborhood. And I was sitting there at the mini station one day, sitting in front of the window, and across the street uh, there was a grocery store. Mm -hmm. And I saw a woman come out of the grocery store, and all of a sudden I heard her scream. And I saw her you know, tugging back and forth with a guy who was trying to take a purse yeah, from her. And I yelled back to the officers behind me because they were behind me writing a report. And I said, hey, I think that guy's trying to snatch that woman's purse. And they took off running out of the station right when the guy was taken off down the street with the purse. They were able to, to grab the guy, take him into custody, and they took the woman's purse back to her. And I remember standing there in the doorway listening to the woman say, 
thank you so much. I don't know what I would have done, but all of my money, because she had just cashed her check. She said all my money to pay my rent and to pay my bills was in that purse. And if he had gotten away with that, she said, I don't know how I would have made it this month. Yeah. And and that was really, and I, you know, I looked at that and I said, if the police weren't there to do what they do, Mm. nobody would have been there to help that woman. Mm. And I said, I want to do that. Mm. I want to go out in the community and I want to do something that I know contributes to helping people in our community. So when you start to, to see this other side and start to embrace it and go back into your, into your own neighborhood, and I'm sure you're talking to your parents, talking to your friends, what was the reaction from, from the people you were close to as you were having this evolution in terms of, of what the police are? Well, it's kind of different because I did not start my police career in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I decided I wanted to get into law enforcement, that was right when the economic downturn occurred in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Basically, people stopped buying American-made cars. Right. And the economy really took a significant financial hit. Mm-hmm. So just about everything in the city was shut down. And there were hardly any law enforcement agencies in the city of Detroit or the surrounding area that were hiring. Mm-hmm. So I looked at two agencies that had come to Detroit um, who were hiring and were looking at you know, kind of increasing their staffing. One was the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, mm-hmm. and the other one was the Houston Police Department. Mm-hmm. Well, I had applied for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office first, and they were actually in the process of doing my background investigation. It was taking them a while. Um, and then Houston came to town. I went to Houston, and I tested. And Houston then had a mandate, because Houston was growing so fast back in the early 80s, they had a mandate to hire 600 police officers a year. Um, if you look at trying to hire 600 police officers a year, you're going through about 6,000 applications. Right. And I remember when I went in and I went to my final interview, the sergeant asked me, and it really surprised me. He said, listen, he says, I have a background investigator in Detroit right now finishing up two other background investigations. He said, if I can get a hold of him and get him to stay there another week and he can do your background investigation, can you be here in three weeks? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's kind of a quick turnaround. But I didn't want to tell him no, because I, I thought he'd say, well, if you can't be here in three weeks, then forget it. We'll just move to the next person on the list. So I said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So I had not told my parents that I had applied for the Houston Police Department. So when I got home, I decided the best thing for me to do would be to tell my dad and have my dad tell my mom. <laughs> so my dad was sitting there reading the newspaper, the Detroit News. And I said, Dad, can I talk to you for a second? I told him what was going on. He said, you know. He said, that sounds good. He says, I'm really, really proud of you, son. Is this really what you want to do? And I said, yeah, it is. And he said, well, that's good. And he um, said, have you talked to your mom yet? And I said, no, I was kind of hoping you would do that. And he looked at me and he said, that's not going to happen. And he kept reading the paper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I actually had to go in and tell her. And she was not as supportive as I anticipated. I mean, she was concerned. Right. She was concerned not only with me going away, right. but going away and getting into law enforcement. Right. Yeah. Right. Did you stay at home to study uh, for college, criminal justice for college? Yeah. Um, first couple of years, I stayed at home and, and studied. I actually did not initially go to school for criminal justice. Mm-hmm. I went to school for business. Okay. Um, but you know, then I kind of you know picked up a couple of criminal justice classes, uh, but my focus at the time was you know kind of looking at getting a business degree. Right, and then you just they hooked you, huh? You just, <laughs> they, they hooked me. Yeah. They hooked me. I mean, over thirty-five years mm-hmm. later, I mean, I still enjoy what I do. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is still exciting. Um, I still look forward to coming to work every day. I still really enjoy putting on this uniform. Um, and, and I still consider it an honor to go out and, and serve this great community. When you got involved in law enforcement, what what did you aspire to be? Detective? Chief? Any particular interests? You know, I, I never in a million years uh, thought about becoming a police chief. Uh, you know, my goal was to be the best police officer I could be. And at some point in time, maybe move up to the rank of sergeant. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, use my skills, my knowledge, my experience to assist newer, younger officers coming on. Um, and I was fortunate enough that when I transitioned from the Houston Police Department, I spent about 10 years there. And then I was, um, I looked at another opportunity in Aurora, Colorado, and I ended up retiring there after 15 years. I was fortunate enough when I went to Aurora that I really got some really good opportunities to move up and advance uh, in the department there from being a training officer for the new officers coming out of the academy to being an investigator and then eventually an actual detective um, and then a sergeant, a lieutenant, um, and then, you know, left there as a commander in charge of the largest police district there in Aurora, Colorado. Right, right. And you went from there to Arizona? Denton, Texas. Denton, Texas. Right outside of Dallas as the police chief there. Um, That was... I, you know, I call my Denton experience the classic example of be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just decided just on a whim just to apply for a police chief's job that came across the, the email at my office. And I said, you know, I wonder how far I could actually get in a police chief application process. I never in a million years thought I'd get a police chief's job on my first try. Mm. And I filled out all the paperwork and sent it in and, you know, kept going, going, going. And then they sent me an email saying, well, congratulations, you're a finalist for the position. We'd like to fly you here for final interviews. And I literally had to go and find a map to see where Denton, Texas was. Right. Because I had never even looked it up. Right. And I'm going, I guess I ought to figure out where this place <laughs> is. And uh, went in and, and did the interview and um, was actually, you know, after the interview, city manager asked me, could, could I stay over a couple extra days? And I said, no, of course, you're paying for it. Mm-hmm. And um, about two days later, city manager, mm-hmm. as I was on the way to the airport to leave, uh, called me and said, I'd like to offer you the job. Mm-hmm. And, and the rest is history. And I've been police chief ever since then. Did you find out what about what it was about your, your resume and, and then your interview that really attracted them to you? Did you find out? You know, I, I think it was the depth mm-hmm. of the actual experience that I had. I mean, I was very fortunate and blessed in the fact that I spent 10 years with a major, large law enforcement right. agency right. with the Houston Police Department. Um, I had spent time in a lot of critical areas in Aurora, like I said, from training officer to investigator to detective to sergeant to lieutenant to commander. But I think the thing that really made a difference for them in Denton when I got the police chief's job was some of the things that I had done in the area of community policing and working in the community and working with the community and being in charge of our chaplain's unit and working with various community groups and some of the really good reference letters and reference information that they got from people in the community who were very supportive um, of me as, as their commander and very supportive of me, you know, actually aspiring to move higher to be a police chief commander is a leadership spot chiefs a whole nother level what what were some of the the leadership challenges as you've as you moved into that slot well you know of course 
in any supervisory position, especially as you move up higher in a supervisory position, um, you deal with personnel related matters. And that's something that you know you not only have to be prepared for, uh, but sometimes those decisions are not necessarily easy right. uh, because of the impact it has not just on the member, but sometimes the member and the member's families. So those are some, uh, some of the most challenging issues. And then, of course, you know, the critical decision making uh, that you have to you know, be involved in on a day to day basis. Anything from responding to a major critical incident or, you know, the latest political crisis that right. may be going on at the particular point in time. Or anything that has to do with, you know, something that may be going on in the department that requires, you know, your attention at that particular point in time. You know, you can plan your day, you can plan your week all you want, but you never know when you walk through the door and something is sitting on your desk or that phone rings and then everything that you've got on your calendar, you've got to push off to the side. Right. The community policing you mentioned is uh, did that in denton I, I know you're doing it here i assume that you did it in arizona how has that evolved from from when you started what have you learned and tweaked and what are some of the best practices you figured out from from doing that over the the years well there, there, there's a couple of things um i know initially for years and years and years um, a lot of agencies use community policing as kind of the buzzword mm-hmm. And the, the thing that I've already been big, I've always been big on is, are you saying that you're using, that you're actually out there doing community policing or are you actually out there doing it? Right. And it's one thing to say we're a community policing organization, but if you go around your community and officers and people in the community don't know their officers, they, you haven't planned any events, there's not really anything going on that you can show to try and strengthen your relationship and your partnership with members of your community, then you're not really doing community policing. This is something that we struggle with on a nationwide basis. Um, I'm currently on the International Association of Chiefs of Police Community Policing Committee. And we go back and forth even trying to figure out a really good definition for community policing that all agencies can use Mm -hmm. and what actually needs to be involved in that definition. And and the definition that we come up with as a a committee, will it fit all the law enforcement agencies um, who are members of the International Association of Chiefs of Police? You know, some 18,000 law enforcement agencies. So we go back and forth with that. Uh, One of the things that I've done since I've been here is I know we've talked about community policing and we've kind of taken community policing to the next level. We don't necessarily refer to it as community policing anymore here in Savannah. We refer to it as relationship-based policing because my goal is to community policing basically involves developing a partnership between law enforcement and the communities that we serve. With relationship-based policing, we want to go beyond developing a partnership. We want to develop a relationship with the communities that we serve. An example that I give people when I talk about relationship-based policing is when you're in a relationship, that the thing that I think is different between a relationship and a partnership is when you're in a relationship, you should be committed to each other. Mm-hmm. And we want to be involved in a relationship with members of our community where we're committed to members of our community and hopefully the members of our community are committed to us. We interrupt this Difference Maker interview with Savannah Police Chief Roy Minter to tell you about the Difference Maker's presenting sponsor and a real Difference Maker in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. You may have seen recently where a highly respected trade journal named the Savannah area the number one locale for economic development in the country among like-sized markets. That standing is a credit to the folks at CETA who have and are pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. 
CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. That's S-E-D-A dot org. Now back to the discussion with Chief Mentor. You go to Texas, Arizona, Savannah. Why Savannah? You know, Savannah presented a very unique opportunity for me. Um, I w- my wife and I were actually looking at moving to the Atlanta area. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always heard about Savannah. I'd never had a chance to visit it, but I always heard about the great history of Savannah and how beautiful it was. So when I saw the opportunity come up again, I said, you know, that's something that I just kind of like to take a look at. Um, and the consultant had actually reached out to me. And I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And um, decided to you know, submit my information and to participate in, in part of the process. And I'll tell you, I am absolutely uh, really impressed with this community. I mean, I got here and the community welcomed me with, with open arms, and I'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I'm, I'm also, you know, I, I look every day at this community and, and what it represents and how beautiful this community is. You know, I go around the country, and, and as soon as I mention Savannah, you know, people's faces light up and they go, oh, my gosh, either they have been here or they want to come here. Right. Uh, so you usually run into to one or two people when you mention the word Savannah. Right. In recent months that started to start back some programs that had gone away. Can you mm-hmm. kind of walk us through some of those programs and what you hope to get out of them mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in, the, in the months ahead? Well, let me, let me start with one that's probably most familiar with people in our community, um, and that's Savannah Impact Program, or as it's affectionately known as, as SIP. Savannah Impact is a program that city started years ago that was very, very beneficial in addressing some of the crime and quality of life issues that uh, were impacting the city. Um, Savannah Impact was is basically made up of, of three areas. Uh, the first area has to do with assisting with intensive uh, monitoring of people who are on probation and parole. Um, the second uh, area is you know addressing juvenile crime and at-risk juveniles. And then the third really important area is you know assisting with employment opportunities. Um, we have, you know, at the direction of council and the encouragement of council, have been provided additional funding to look at bringing Savannah Impact back. Uh, we're hoping to have, uh, hopefully, if we can get to all the pieces of the puzzle together, some type of kickoff for Savannah Impact, um, if not in June, definitely by July, and bringing that program back. Um, it's going to be a little challenging for us because there's some components of the program that were in place back then or no longer in place. Like, you know, when we don't have the building anymore, we had Savannah Impact before. So we're going to have to look at, you know, what we need to do to allow all these entities to work together. And the, the three big ones are Department of Criminal, I mean, Department of Community Services, DCS, um, and then Department of Juvenile Services, Juvenile Justice, um, and then WorkSource, Coastal WorkSource. Uh, for the job training part of it. So we are moving forward with bringing Savannah Impact back. The other program that we're in the process of trying to revive and bring back is PAL, our Police Athletic and Activities League. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the opportunity to really, in a law enforcement capacity, to go out and spend more time with our youth and really have an impact on their lives. Um, PAL programs around the country have proven to be very beneficial 
and bridging the gap between law enforcement and youth in the community. Um, it's my understanding, looking at some of the history of our PAL program, uh, we had a very successful PAL program um, that had very successful, you know, different types of sports activities, which resulted in some of these teams winning championships. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not necessarily solely what PAL is about, right. um, but when you can pump up uh, a young person's, you know, pride um, and and really invest in their future and giving them you know, that hope that they may be looking for, you know, whether it's hope in succeeding in the sports arena or the classroom or just succeeding in life. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for us to get out and get involved with these young people. So those are two programs that we're really excited about bringing back and uh, hopefully I'll have them up and running soon. Yeah, yeah, that'd be, that'd be, be a lot of fun. Another new initiative that you started not too long ago was was the behavioral health unit you kind of talk about why you think that is important and and how's it how's it going so far well actually um it's going well Uh, we're really impressed with what we're seeing from our behavioral health unit folks Um, this came about after looking at the number of calls for service that we as an agency responded to and there was one year responded to about 3900 calls for service that were specifically related to individuals who are going through some type of mental crisis related episode and those are not necessarily calls that required a law enforcement response or that we were for the most part adequately trained to address it in the way that these calls for service needed to be addressed Um, so the we went and got a federal grant through the department of justice and allowed us to develop a behavioral health unit which is staffed by two police officers and a trained clinician Mm-hmm. And we realize that they're going out on the types of calls where they can go out in a basically a, a non-traditional police uniform, interact with individuals, kind of do a quick assessment of what's going on with those individuals and kind of assess whether or not this is a law enforcement issue or if this is an issue where somebody needs to be connected with resources right. and work with those individuals get them the help and assistance that they need, connect them with the resources that they need, and assist them with developing some type of follow-up plan to reduce the possibility of recidivism and continue to respond to those types of calls for service. Uh, We're already receiving calls from other law enforcement agencies across the country inquiring about our program, how we put it together, how it was funded, how successful it has been. Um, I can tell you, I can count just off the top of my head at least four or five incidents that they've been involved in where we think they were directly responsible for keeping people from possibly committing suicide. Okay. Uh, reuniting individuals with their families. Um, you know, that when I got my first email from someone who said, thank you very much for what your behavioral health unit did. If it wasn't for them, I don't think my brother would still be alive. And we now have the opportunity to get him the help that he needs um, that is so impactful that that's worth all that we've expended and all that we've been given to, to start that program when they go on calls are you finding more often than not that having that clinician component of it is is more often than not is that uh, uh, proving to be what is necessary to help defuse the situation or is it a bit of a mixed bag 
I think it is because when you're talking about a clinician, you're talking about somebody with four to eight years of training specifically in that area. Um, you're sending, a lot of times you're sending a police officer on those types of calls who may have 40 hours of CIT training. training right. And a clinician can sit there and go, wait a minute, I think what this person is going through is X, Y, Z. Um, let me ask a couple of questions and then I'll be able to correctly assess what's going on. What type of medication are you on? Um, what's your day been like? Uh, what have you done? They know certain things that they can ask that would put that person in a certain category that would allow them to determine what type of treatment or treatment facility the person may need to be transported to to address whatever issue the person's going through, as opposed to a police officer who may say, well, yeah, they're going through some things, but I'm not really sure whether this is a mental health issue or whether this is a criminal issue. Um, so, you know, I, one of the things that we've talked about around the country is, you know, when these incidents come up, what is the appropriate response for these types of calls for service? Sending somebody with a badge or a gun or a badge and a gun or sending somebody who has a higher level of training to do an initial assessment and provide the needed resources for these individuals. Yeah, because this really gets at the core of what has been politicized as defund the police, right? Mm -hmm. It's really not talking about defunding the police. You're talking about using police resources to hire non-traditional personnel to help with law enforcement. And I think it's pretty important that, that people uh, see uh, instances like this and know the, the results that you're getting out of it to see the validity of it, to actually put a real value on it. Is it something you see is going to kind of grow in your department? I, I believe it will. Um, we've gotten some really good feedback from our elected officials. Um, we've gotten some really good feedback from our community members. Um, of course, it's been a great assistance to our officers out on the street by not being dispatched to or having to respond to those types of calls. Uh, we've gotten some really good local, um, state, and national exposure on the program. Uh, we were featured on Nightline not too long ago. Um, so I, I think it's something that is not only here to stay in the Savannah Police Department, I think eventually you'll start seeing other agencies in this area who may kind of duplicate or replicate that program. Um, and I, you're starting to see more and more agencies across the country who are going with that type of model. Mm -hmm. Rank and file, do they do they see the value of it? Are you hearing from the officers that they're like, yeah, this is, uh, as you said earlier, they are equipped for situations that I'm not. Are, are you seeing an embrace amongst the rank and file? Well, absolutely. The, the, the biggest complaint that we hear from the rank and file is not, where are they? Um, do I, can they go on this call? It, the, the biggest complaint is we need more of them mm -hmm. and we need them here more often mm -hmm. uh, because they realize how valuable they are. I mean, if it's left up to the rank and file, we'd have a ton of BHU teams mm -hmm. who would work seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Right. Right. Wow. That's very interesting. So that's a, that's a good, that's a good segue is, uh, you know, I think the BHU is, is a little, is a, is a small piece of, of what has been pushed in terms of police reform, stemming back to some incidents that have gone on for for many years, but of course came into the came into the spotlight last year with uh, with what happened with with George Floyd in in Minneapolis. And I know that, that the Savannah Police have done a lot of work in terms of addressing some of whether it's training or policy changes. Can you 
kind of talk about how what happened last summer and maybe it was already going it was already going that way and that kind of accelerated it but how has um what has happened with the 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 more societal push toward police reform how has that kind of gotten the momentum going within your own department well you know we're, we're fortunate in the fact that you know, we have and continue to have a really good working relationship with members of our community. Um, some of the things that are being discussed as part of a police reform package are things that we've looked at for a while and either were not in place in the Savannah Police Department or were in place and we've made changes to address those types of things. Uh, some of the things that you hear about as part of a police reform package is you hear about banning chokeholds. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we, we yeah. ban chokeholds. They're no longer authorized in the Savannah Police Department. You hear about things like shooting at moving vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, we took that out of our policy a while ago. You hear about things such as no-knock warrants. Mm-hmm. We don't do no-knock warrants anymore. Um, you hear about things like being able to really accurately track and have a really good database for your disciplinary matters uh, that officers are involved in. Probably shortly after I got here, almost three years ago, um, we bought and purchased an electronic database um, that not only tracks, but you can enter all of our information in there, and it's tracked and it flows electronically. Uh, When I first got here, we had paper files okay. that we were sending to each person's office, and it was it was really nothing for somebody to go. I don't know what I did with that file. I kind of lost it. I thought it was here. Maybe I gave it to Adam. Maybe I gave it to somebody else. We're we're done with that. Uh, so we're doing everything electronically. So we're very proud in the fact that you know a lot of things that are being proposed as part of police reform, they've been doing here in the Savannah Police Department for quite some time. The other thing we're very proud of is, you know, this is an agency that is not only a nationally accredited agency through CALEA, the National Accreditation Agency, but it's also a state accredited agency. And it shows that our policies and procedures are in line with both national accreditation standards and state accreditation standards. There are not a lot of agencies nationally or here in the state of Georgia that have that dual accreditation. The policies that came down from the task force, I know you, you adopted, I'm off the top of my head, I want to say 10, 10 out of 12, almost all of them. You got a good memory. Hey, how about that? I get lucky <laughs> sometimes. When those started, to, when, when that task force work started to come out, and, and I know that you guys were, were somewhat engaged throughout that process, what was, uh, what was your thought process when those came down? Um, obviously, you adopted a bunch of them, so you must have been pretty accepting of them, but did, did, was that a difficult thing to deal with from from your standpoint or was that just something that needed to be done well not, not necessarily i'm not going to say that it's something that needed to be done mm-hmm. uh, but i think it's good you know sometimes to put a more critical eye on law enforcement agencies this this is something that we're probably going to have to get used to in law enforcement and that is having some type of oversight for law enforcement agencies that don't necessarily involve members of the law enforcement profession Uh, We realized that when the CARES task force was put together, that it was put together specifically to take a look at our use of force policies, procedures, practices. Uh, But they kind of broadened scope a little bit and started looking at some other things. You know, I'm proud of the fact that, once again, a lot of stuff that they looked at was either already in place 
or it was things that we were already in the process of moving toward, uh, which I think really impressed the task force. Um, you know, you look at an agency of our size, and when you look at 12 recommendations, and out of the 12, 10 of them were either adopted or we were already in the process of moving in that direction, uh, I think speaks volumes mm-hmm. of our agency. When you talk about things like chokeholds and, and lethal force, keep kind of put in perspective for the layman you know obviously very few of us have been in a situation where we've had to deal with with something that would require part of that how difficult is that for a for a police officer who's actually in the ground in the moment to to deal with that and know that the training needs to take over obviously but but how much of a challenge is that from a law enforcement perspective to 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 do the to do the right thing i guess would be the the way to put it well, we would hope that it wouldn't be that challenging because it all starts with training and repetition mm-hmm. and making sure that you continue to train people, especially in the areas of use of force, uh, what's taught by the department, what's accepted by the department, and what is in the parameters of policy and procedure. And that you spend a lot of time not only conducting that training, but reinforcing that training. Um, what you want to see when you get in those situations is people tell you all the time that when you're in a situation like that, your training should automatically kick in and you should automatically think back to how was I trained? What was I trained to do? And that's what I need to do. And if I follow that training, I should be okay from both the standards of, you know, using the training appropriately and using the training um, within the parameters of policy and procedures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I just I struggle with that sometimes because I think about the fact that you know the fact that people see your uniform. Some people are like have a lot of respect for that uniform. Some people have the opposite, mm-hmm. and depending on the situation, that can really that can really complicate things. And I you know there's been a lot of talk about. Um, you know, you, you back the blue or you don't back the blue. I'm, I'm one of these that doesn't think in those absolutes. I think try to be understanding, but at the same time, as you said, uh, have the training and have this is what should happen. But at the same time, sometimes things escalate and and things happen. And that's not to excuse anything, but I think it's something that, that people in the community need to keep in mind when they look at these they look at these situations from the outside and, mm-hmm. and try to pass judgment. So, Again, you are listening to a conversation with Savannah Police Chief Roy Minter. While he takes a short break, I have a call to action for you. Subscribe to savannahnow.com. Our website is the best place to keep up with community news, sports, and yes, opinion makers. And right now, you can get six months access for $6. I'm no mathematician, but that works out to $1 a month. I didn't even have to use my smartphone calculator for that one. It's a pretty good deal. Go to savannahnow.com or download our app to see our product for yourself. Then hit the subscribe button to get full access. Now back to the Difference Maker interview. I mentioned earlier the the George Floyd um, incident last year, the not incident, George Floyd's death last year. And of course we had the the, the rally here and the protest here and, and you and, and Mayor Johnson were kind of at the forefront of, of dealing with that and putting that forward and why do you think Savannah was able to largely avoid some of the unrest that we saw elsewhere in the country? 
You know, I think it was a couple of reasons. The, the first reason is I think our outstanding community that we have here. Um, Savannah, to my knowledge, has never been a community that is, you know, a community that feels that to express whatever their issues or concerns are, they need to express them in an unlawful manner. And I, I, I applaud our community for realizing there is a way to get your message out and make sure your voice is heard in a lawful and peaceful way. And that's exactly what we saw here. Um, we saw very few incidents of anybody acting outside the parameters of the law and when those things we addressed. But the vast majority of people wanted to make sure that their message and their voice was heard. Uh, we actually went out and assisted those individuals with making sure their message and their voice was heard. Uh, we marched with them. Mm-hmm. We assisted with shutting down the streets. Um, people were very appreciative. We were interactive with people. Um, we weren't in their face telling them, you're not going to do this, you're not going to do that. We don't, we don't agree with what you're doing. Um, I completely understood and can to, still to this day completely understand why those people were in the streets mm-hmm. and what they were protesting about. So there was no need for us to be mad or upset or confrontational. Um, and we took the stance that they want their voice to be heard. And as long as they're doing it in a, a peaceful, respectful, lawful manner, we should assist them. Race and police. There's been a lot of talk that, that, that law enforcement is inherently systemically racist. Um, depending on who you talk to that, that study history, they can make the case for that. Uh, from your standpoint, when you think about race and policing, what is your take on, on race and policing? Well, there are some issues and concerns um, throughout the country that, that need to be addressed. And they need to be addressed from the standpoint of sitting down and having conversations with individuals. And the first thing you want to do is allow them to have a voice. Listen to specifically what their issues and concerns are. And then make sure you follow up and have an open, honest, and candid discussion about their issues and their concerns. we, we are at the point now in law enforcement where we cannot stick our heads in the sand and say, we don't have a problem, move along, there's nothing to see here. We're way past that point. We're at the point where people want to know more about what we do. Um, I call it basically what I call the, the ATC. Um, the first A stands for accountability. People want to know who's holding the police accountable. If they're not doing what they should be doing, then who's holding you accountable? The T stands for transparency. People want to know, they want a closer view, and they want information on what we're doing, how we're doing it, um, who we're doing it to. Um, and then the actual C stands for communication. They want to they want have more open and honest and candid communications. We have to be willing to go to the table and have those discussions with individuals and not shy away by saying, you know, no, there's, there's nothing going on. No, your view is totally wrong. You need to listen to why they have that view, and you need to have a discussion about our point of view. Uh, we have had the opportunity to have those discussions. We continue to have the opportunity to have those discussions, um, and I don't shy away from having those discussions with members of our community about some of the issues and concerns going on in law enforcement, um, 
some of the things that you know we may not have gotten right, but a lot of things that we get wrong get right on the on a daily basis. When you interview and in, in hire officers, you obviously can't look inside their heart. Um, how do you go about trying to to weed out the the, the recruits that may have uh, some some racist tendencies that can manifest themselves in very dangerous situations? Well, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, agencies struggle with. I mean, you, you, you go through a hiring process, and we have a rigorous, rigorous hiring process that includes an extensive background investigation, um, going through and looking at different things in an applicant's background. Um, psychological exam is, is also part of it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you won't hire somebody and then realize that there are other things in their background that did not necessarily come out during the hiring phase. Mm-hmm. And that's the big reason why you know, we always encourage supervisors to make sure they connect with individuals who work with them, make sure they're keeping an eye on them, why we have strict policies and procedures in place, um, why we have uh, you know, kind of a, an, and they, we don't necessarily call it an emergency alert system, but an alert system in the department where if you're seeing, you're starting to see a pattern develop where individuals are, a number of complaints, a number of traffic accidents, a number of use of force incidents, where you have a trigger there where it sets off an alert and it lets the supervisors know, you need to call this individual in to kind of figure out what's going on because we're starting to see a pattern here of things that are going on. Any agency that's not doing that um, is really missing a key component of really being able to monitor and address any issues that may be going on with members of their agency. I'm proud of the fact that we have uh, that type of format in place and it's used and it assists us with keeping an eye on things. Yeah, I was going to say, you probably have something in place that you can tell if somebody may be profiling or Mm -hmm. you can see who's, who's stopping who and who's who's arresting who and and you all keep your your thumb pretty much on on the pulse of that absolutely absolutely we try we're um we're looking at in the very near future moving to an electronic citation uh process Uh, right now everything's handwritten Mm -hmm. so i mean you have to go through and kind of research and look you know citation after citation after citation uh but it'll make it a lot easier for us to really have be able to access you know, electronic uh, forms or electronic database information once the e-citation program is up and running. Um, you know, you put an officer's name in there and see how many citations that officer's written, who the officer um, issued the citations to, what the citations were issued for, what particular area of town those citations were issued in. So we're slowly moving towards, you know, that type of process. Yeah. Speaking more broadly, you've been here a couple of years now. Are there a couple of things you're looking for in the next couple of months or, uh, or maybe the next year in terms of, of trends, in terms of crime, in terms of law enforcement in Savannah that maybe we should, we should all keep an eye on? Well, you know, yeah, we're, we're continuing to put a big focus on technology. Um, technology continues to be a big and critical need for us as an agency. Uh, we've made some significant strides in the area of technology. I just talked about, you know, our e-citation program. Um, within the next couple of months or so, we'll be looking at at least signing a contract to transition to a new records management system. Mm-hmm. Our records management system is about 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it does not work as well as it should work. Uh, but, you know, I talked about our new electronic system for 
our um, citations, our traffic citations and other citations. We have a new electronic system that we're using to track the paperwork for officers who are going through training once they come out of the academy. Uh, we've got a new electronic system that we're using for you know, mobile search warrants. Um, detectives no longer have to go all the way back to the office to type a search warrant. A detective can actually type a search warrant and get a search warrant uh, actually approved, verified while in the field. Uh, but we also need to look at other things that we believe will help and assist us um, in some of the challenges we face. Um, you know, cameras, lighting, um, other technology that probably doesn't necessarily need to be mentioned right now mm -hmm. uh, throughout the city. But we're always looking to see what we can do internally to assist us with being more efficient in the job that we perform, but also what also can we use out in the community to assist us with the challenges we face, especially in the area of crime. One of the things we talked about for quite some time is really putting together what we call a real-time crime center, mm -hmm. um, a 24-7 crime center that's hooked into all of the cameras um, in the city, um, that's hooked into the databases throughout this area. So if there's something going on, say like a shot spotter goes off, a camera would automatically turn on in that area. Somebody would automatically turn around in a chair or look up at the screen, mm -hmm. and they'd be able to automatically view what's going on in that area, direct officers in, or provide officers with information regarding that. So there's still some technology components that we're looking at moving towards. Um, staffing is another big one. Yeah, I was going to ask you about recruiting. How's yeah, recruiting? I mean, we're, we're still doing pretty good. Um, I believe right now we're holding somewhere in the area of about 32 vacancies. Um, but our goal is to continue to recruit, continue to hire, and to get to a point where we're no longer trying to hire to fill vacancies. Uh, we're at the point where we have a waiting list, right. a waiting list for individuals who are sitting there going, I wish the Savannah Police Department would hurry up and hire. I really want to join the Savannah Police Department, but I'm sitting on a waiting list right now. What's made the biggest difference there? Was it the, the city council passing the... The, the, the payroll, I think it was probably been two years ago now, but it's mm -hmm. been a while, or is it the reputation of the department? What all plays into to making uh, SPD more attractive to, to potential officers? I'd say all of the above. Um, I would say the compensation and benefits package was huge for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we were struggling with that uh, because we were the largest agency in this area, but at that time we were uh, one of, if not the lowest paying agency in this area. So the compensation um, and benefits package, uh, I think, really, really helped us out in the area of recruiting. Um, it continues to help us. But we realize that we're not going to always be able to outbid people when it sure. comes to money. I mean, at some point in time, it comes down to, you know, not what you're being paid, but where you want to be and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And we continue to sell two things, the agency and the community. This is a great community to live in, to work in, to serve, but also we're a law enforcement agency of 536 sworn positions. I've got four police precincts. We're a full service agency. I have my own traffic unit, my own SWAT team, my own detective unit, my own vice and narcotics unit, and we continue to tell people, you can come to the Savannah Police Department if you're truly seeking a career in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And at some point, if you want to be a traffic officer and ride a motorcycle, that's a possibility. If you want to be a mounted patrol officer, that's another possibility. If you want to be a detective, that's another possibility. You may or, Some people may or may not get those opportunities in other agencies in, in the area, but because we're a full-service agency, you could basically come here and have the possibility of living out your dream. Mm 
mm-hmm. and being in law enforcement and saying, I want to do this. Well, I did that for a couple of years. Now I want to do this. Um, it's, it's a great opportunity and it's a great time to join the Savannah Police Department. Well, thanks so much for, for giving us your insights on all these things. I know some of those topics are, are hard to talk about, but I really appreciate you being uh, forthcoming and sharing it with us. Well, hard but necessary um, and very important to talk about. So thank you very much for your time and thank you for your support. That's all for this episode of Difference Makers. Thanks to Savannah Police Chief Roy Mincer for being our latest Difference Maker. Thanks also to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders such as MPC Executive Director Melanie Wilson, Bishop Stephen Parks of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Savannah, and Georgia Southern Athletic Director Jared Benko. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and savannahnow.com. On behalf of myself and producer Zach Dennis, thank you for listening.